she got into MIT, I think, as one of only like three women in the engineering class of 1934. And not only that, she got a scholarship to MIT. However, she went to go study aeronautical engineering because what she wanted to do was she actually wanted to fly airplanes. And her mother forbade her from flying airplanes. And so she thought learning to build them would be a close second. And it wasn't. This is Larissa Reinhardt. I'm the author of First to the Front, the biography of the trailblazing female war correspondent, Dickie Chappelle, who covered nearly every major conflict from World War II to Vietnam. She was the only woman on Okinawa reporting. She was in the Sierra Maestras with Castro. She was the first Western reporter uh, embedded with the Algerian Liberation Front. She marched through the jungles of Laos with special forces and jumped out of planes with the South Vietnamese Airborne. So I was just really excited to write her biography and get to know her and why Dickie Chappelle went to such great lengths to tell the stories of all these people um, fighting for freedom uh, around the world, right? Because her reporting covered the period from 1945 to 1965. Our guest is cultural critic and historian Larissa Reinhardt, who writes about art, war, and politics. She has a master's degree from New York University in experimental humanities, a bachelor's in literature from University of California at Santa Cruz. Uh, her book is about uh, Dickie Chappelle. Uh, first off, she had a different name when she was born. What was her name? Her name was Georgette Meyer. So she, you know, was named, there's a number of people in her family named George, Georgette. Her aunt was actually named just George. So she was named Georgette. And I think like a lot of sort of American self-made folk heroes, she reinvented herself many times. And so she went through sort of a number of names and settled on Dickie. And no one is quite sure the derivation of her eventual sort of moniker. She does indicate that she took it because she loved Richard Byrd, who was, if you remember, the pilot who was the first American to fly or the first to fly over the North Pole. And she loved to fly. And so she took on his name as a sort of homage mm-hmm. or perhaps aspiration. Or at least that's what's, that is mm-hmm. one um, explanation that she gives throughout her life. And Chappelle, she married a man named Chappelle, right? Yeah, she did. She was married to Tony Chappelle for 15 years. And she took his name. And she came from... Uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Yes, she came from Sherwood, which is a small suburb right outside of Milwaukee. And, you know, it was a very uh, German suburb. There were German uh, language newspapers. There were, you know, everyone spoke German. She spoke German. Um, And that is particularly important as we get into World War II. And then, of course, um, for Dickie, uh, the post-World War II era, as she is um, documenting the um, post-war sort of effects uh, in Europe. And she was really able to, to speak German to people and get uh, get their story more than a lot of other folks could just because she, 
she really spoke the language and to a certain degree understood um, that culture. So Dickie Chappelle wanted to be a war correspondent eventually, but she also loved airplanes. And it says at age 16, she went to MIT to study aeronautical design in MIT out in Cambridge, Mass. You mean she moved out there? She moved out there. She, You know, she was a real, you know, autodidact and a real genius. She graduated two years early from from high school as the valedictorian of her high school. She got into MIT, I think, as one of only, like, three women in the engineering class of 1934. And not only that, she got a scholarship um, to, to MIT. However... Huh. She went to go study aeronautical engineering because what she wanted to do was she actually wanted to fly airplanes. And her mother forbade her from flying airplanes. And so she thought learning to build them would be a close second. And it wasn't. And so she just had this yearning to fly. And so eventually, um, and very quickly, actually, she talked her way aboard a supply plane that was going to Worcester, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, um, in, uh, right after a, a huge flood that had actually cut off the entire city from getting any supplies. So the only way to get the supplies was to uh, airlift them in. And so she, and she at the time was also, you know, um, a budding reporter. She was writing about um, airplanes for a number of different magazines. And so she talked her way on board, and they took off, and she never looked back. She never wanted to be, you know, earthbound again. Hmm. Um, and she very quickly flunked out of MIT because she was always at the airfield trying to get aboard another plane. Um, she moved home and immediately got a job with the Flying Circus as a secretary. But she took part of her salary in um, in flying lessons. Where there was a will, there was a way. And what is the Flying Circus? Oh my goodness! Well, right, this is in you know early days of uh, the airplane, and you can still go to a, to a flying circus. They're not as common. But you would have pilots, stunt pilots do loops and barrel rolls, and then you would have acrobats out on the plane doing handstands and this sort of thing and flying very low. And it was a really popular attraction. Now, Dickie eventually was in love with one of the pilots or something like that, or that's what her mother was fearful of, and her mother kind of exiled her to Florida. Yes, yeah, so she, you know, was a teenage, red-blooded teenage American girl and um, who can't be enamored by a stunt pilot. And her mother caught wind of this and shipped her down to Coral Gables, which was then and is now a sort of quiet Miami suburb, whereupon Dickie found a job at another flying circus um, rather immediately uh, as their you know, publicity manager. Um, but this was still the Great Depression, right? This was 1939, and she was being paid the princely sum of $15 a week. And everybody needed money, you know. They were middle class. They were they fared okay. But, you know, everybody was scrimping and saving. And so you can't say no at that time to mm-hmm. that kind of money. And so they let her, let her continue working there despite their um, 
you know, uh, reservations. And for the first time and not the last, she goes to Cuba to do publicity for an air show? Yeah, so um, right at the time, Cuba was under the governance of the Batista regime. And it was, you know, for, for those of you, us who don't remember, it was a, almost an extension of Miami, right? This was America's playground. And so she was working at the Miami Air Show, and their sister air show was in Havana. And mm-hmm. so she went to cover this. And the they had American flyers, but really the star of the day was this person named Michael Orta, who, or Miguel Orta, rather, who was the captain in the Cuban Air Force. And, he, however, unlike his American counterpart, he was flying in not a stunt plane, but a war plane. And when he tried to do his, his trick, his plane actually didn't have the power to maneuver through it. And he died. He died in a rather gruesome plane crash. And mm-hmm. she was there on the ground. And she had to sort of choose between her natural tendency to recoil, right, from this violence, Mm -hmm. or to do as journalists do and rush forward. And she knew she had to get the story, and she ran towards the crash at 19 years old to get the story, and she filed it with the New York Times. So this was sort of the first time one that she saw violence in her life, right? I mean, despite her adventurous tendencies, she was still a rather sheltered, you know, a white American uh, young woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also the first time that she took that kind of initiative to get the story. And it kind of defined the rest of her life in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Rushing into a difficult situation to get the story that she felt needed to be told. Getting that story uh, printed, and you said in the New York Times, it uh, got her a job in New York City. It's a bit of a circuitous route, but the other reporter uh, there, um, who was filing for another wire agency, um, was impressed by her pluck, as they might say, in that era, and told his friend about it who happened to be the publicity manager for TWA. Mm-hmm. Um, and he needed an assistant. And he found her, gave her a call, offered her a job in New York. And at the time, she was still living in Miami. And he said, okay, great, be in New York in 10 days. By now, or in the story, World War II is underway, and she wants to be a war correspondent? Is 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 that so? Yes. You know, she she always wanted to be part of the action at the center of things, right? She really felt like that was her place. And it's kind of amazing to watch her constantly identify where that is, right? That alone is a difficult task to see where is history being made right now mm-hmm. and then finding a way to get there. So she's 19 years old. She's in Times Square checking the news, right? Because Times Square is called Times Square because the New York Times was there. And they used to have one of those ticker boards that would announce the day's headlines. And it announced Hitler running his Panzer tanks through Poland. So that's how she found out that World War II had really started. She wanted 
to cover that. She wanted to see that. She wanted to be part of that history. And she knew if she was going to do that, she had to be an incredibly versatile reporter, right? Not only because it's difficult to get there in the first place, but also because she's a woman and there's not a lot of female reporters at this time. And so to be more versatile, right, she's always she's already a good writer, but she knows she has to learn how to be a photographer as well. And mm-hmm. so she starts taking photography classes from a World War One vet who is the photography for TWA by the name of Tony Chappelle. Mm-hmm. And so she is 19 at the time. He is, I think, in, he's in his 40s. He is just absolutely smitten by her. And she is very much taken by this older man who is quite experienced and is her, you know, mentor in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And so they marry. They marry the next year. And she's 20 and he's, I believe, 44. And, um, you know, it was a, to, to sort of skip ahead, it was a tumultuous marriage. It wasn't a particularly happy marriage. But it was a defining, uh, it was a defining event in her life. And, but one that she didn't allow to define her, I suppose I should say. And before World War II ends, she, in a sense, gets in on the action at the battles of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Absolutely. So, okay, so in World War II, and I don't know when this changed, probably after Korea, but in World War II, a female reporter could not be where there were not women already. And this is, sounds somewhat tautologic, but what this means is that women could not be, female reporters could not be where there were not nurses. So Dickie finds a way onto a hospital ship. So until she's in the Pacific Ocean Theater, and these hospital ships would anchor right off the coast of these islands, right, in this island hopping campaign. campaign. And so she is just several miles off the coast of uh, Iwo Jima. She sees the fighting. She sees the planes. She sees the anti-aircraft guns. But then she also wants to get closer. And so she's billeted at one point. They have to go back to basically unload all the injured soldiers to a hospital, uh, you know, on land where they can be better cared for. And so she's back in Guam, and she, her uh, sort of tent mate is another female reporter, uh, a British reporter. And she tells her about Pego My Heart, <laughs> right? Classic World War II mm-hmm. plane name, which is a medevac plane that lands on Iwo Jima. And so Dickie then finds a way onto this plane, and that's how she actually gets on to the island. And the fighting has continued to go on, right? We all think about the, the, the flag raising at the end, but it wasn't. That was the turning point, but it was in no way the end. And so Dickie gets onto the island, and she's at a field hospital. She sort of endears herself, as she is so uh, capable of doing, to two Marines. And she tells them what, they're, what she's doing there, which is photographing wounded Marines. And they are moved by this. And they ask, well, what do you want to see next? And she says, I want to see the front, right? And women are not allowed at the front, but they take her there in an armored um, vehicle. You know, it's sort of like this Dante-esque, right, journey into the belly of war. This becomes her modus operandi, uh, becoming friendly with the soldiers and 
and I guess the technical term or the term they use in journalism is she was embedded with the Marine uh, Marine Corps. She was embedded with uh, other conflicts where she uh, brought coverage, like with Fidel Castro. And is that so? I mean, this is what she does, and she'll end up passing away be- because of that. Yes. Yeah, so she was, you know, embedded with fighting forces around the world in, you know, Algeria, Beirut, Cuba, as you mentioned, the Dominican Republic. And the thing about um, Tiki was that she was able to march with any fighting force in the world, regardless of geography or language. And here's why. In 1955, she went to Camp Pendleton to cover the Marines um, as they were designing new strategies and tactics for the Cold War battlefield. And in the process of covering their training, she got military training herself because, right, she had to go on marches. She, she went on their drills. She learned how to do combat roles. She learned how to dig a foxhole. And so regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of what war you are fighting, the soldiering basics are the same. And she knew what those were, and she was quite good at them. So mm. she didn't have to be brought up to speed. She didn't need any special dispensation, regardless of where she was. And a lot of times, you know, soldiers are a bit and understandably miffed that they have this reporter who doesn't know what they're doing, right, mm-hmm. you know, to take care of. Well, mm-hmm. that wasn't the case with Dickie. She, she got along just fine by herself. Mm. And they really appreciated that oftentimes right from the start. And so she was really able to um, just join their ranks seamlessly and, and immediately. And because of that, she was able to go farther and get deeper on the story. Now, I believe you quote her as saying this, I side with prisoners against guards, enlisted men against officers, and weakness against power. Absolutely. You know, she, let me put it this way. She was really for freedom, right? Vicki Chappelle was on the side of freedom. Um, and she, and that sounds abstract and perhaps a little naive, but here's why it was so personal and so real to her. In 1957, she was covering the um, uh, Hungarian uh, uh, war, um, where the Soviet Union was overthrowing a democratically elected government. Mm -hmm. Um, While she was on her way to be embedded with the Hungarian freedom fighters, she was arrested by the Hungarian secret police. And she was imprisoned for six months largely in solitary confinement in a jail in Budapest. She was threatened with torture, rape, and execution by hanging. And she really came to believe at the end that she would never be free, that she would just be living in this frozen hell for the rest of her life, however long that was. And so when she was released, she had a visceral understanding of what it was to live under tyranny and a 
sort of burning desire to make sure that not only she didn't have to experience that again, but that no one would have to experience that. And so as she continued her coverage of the numerous, um, you know, conflicts of the Cold War, uh, she came to understand that it was the prisoners and the enlisted men and the people without power who were fighting for freedom and were mm. her, who were on her side, and therefore she was on their side. And once again, she was embedded when the uh, Americans are getting more involved in the war in Vietnam, but it's, help me with this, it, fairly early in the war, was it not? Uh, that she was embedded and and met her uh, death on a patrol with um, some U.S. Marines. Yes, yeah, so she had been in um, she had been covering the emergent Vietnam War since 1961 when she was uh, embedded with special forces in Laos, um, and this was right a secret war um, started by uh, LBJ, continued by JFK. Uh, and then that went through the entirety of the Vietnam War. She then um, also was in actual Vietnam, where she was embedded with the anti-communist guerrilla army in the Mekong Delta, as well as the South Vietnamese Marines, Airborne Army, and Navy. Um, And so this was all before combat troops landed in Da Nang in March 1965. Um, Mm -hmm. So she had a really keen understanding, I think, honestly, more than anyone else, of what was going on and what the stakes were in South Vietnam. She met her death in, in toward the end of 1965, patrolling with the Marine platoon. Uh, I guess she's marching with the Marines, and the Marine ahead of her hits a tripwire, which starts a, the explosion of a, of a grenade. Yes. So, um, so yes, she was on patrol with the Marines uh, just north of July in, in October of 1965. And it was one of the first, you know, search and clear missions, right, which were, became sort of eponymous with the, with the Vietnam War. And um, the, you know, soldier ahead of her was 19 years old. And, right, the sort of hills of Vietnam were replete right, with these um, improvised explosive devices. And he stepped on it. And, you know, whereas we understand the landmine, you know, the person who steps on it is the person who is killed by it. An improvised explosive device has a delay because of its homemade quality. And she was next in line. And so it was her who was hit with the blast. And, you know, the night before she was having dinner with a friend, and she had said to him, when I die, I want to be on patrol with the Marines. She loved the U.S. Marines, and she always kept them as a touchstone and as a source of inspiration. And I think she knew that 20 years in the field was a long time. So she was lifted uh, some 20 feet in the air, and they were not far out of camp. And so the chaplain ran toward her and um, whispered in his ear, you know, it was bound to happen. And she um, she died um, aboard the helicopter 
uh, as mm. she was being evacuated to the hospital at Chulai. So she, it was a tragic death, but it was also a fitting death. And I don't mean that callously or in, in, in some way trying to, to tie this up, but it was, it was in a way the death that she wanted. She, she mm-hmm. lived, she died as she lived. And after she died, the the Marines uh, gave her a, f- a full Marine burial. Yes, they gave her a full Marine burial. They played um, taps. They folded the flag. They were there at her graveside. I believe it was in 2021 or 2020 that she was actually made an honorary Marine. Um, the year after her death, the Marines uh, put up a... a a plaque in July that said Dickie Chappelle was killed here. Uh, she was one of us and we will miss her. You know, the Marines, she loved the Marines and they loved her back. You know, they, she really had an incredible affinity for them and uh, it was reciprocated. Did doing this book uh, change you? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. <laughs> that is a great question. Yes, it did. Um, it absolutely did. Uh, you know, Dickie is an inspiring figure, and she overcame a great deal to do what she loved and to do also what she thought needed to be done, right? To do the right thing, to get the story, to tell the truth. Um, and she dedicated her life to that. And I was constantly inspired by her and continue to be. And also, you know, when we are inspired, we are changed, right? We are sort of given wings to, to do what it is we think need to be done or what we, what we think we should do. And so, um, you know, this book was really a, quite, a, quite a life-changing thing to write. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Loressa Reinhardt is author of a biography on female photojournalist and war correspondent Dickie Chappelle, titled First of the Front. Do you think, is she still remembered today? You know, she's really not. She has really been sort of buried in the piles of ephemera of history. Um... And I think there's a couple reasons for that. But I think, you know, a lot of times women are known in their lifetime. Uh, and then they are forgotten when when they pass away. And to a degree, it's because, right, when they're alive, she was well known in her lifetime, right? She was on a game show. She was getting published in National Geographic. She was given all kinds of awards for her journalism. Um. But she was her own best advocate, right? She was always putting herself out there. And when she died, you know, history at that time was very, you know, and I don't mean to put too fine a point on it, but it was really about men, you know? Men wrote history, and they wrote history about men. Um, Mm -hmm. And so she was just not included um, in that. And then she was also a very complicated figure, right? She was just virulently anti-communist. She hated communism, and understandably so. But she was also 
very, very pointed in her um, in her uh, opinions about what the United States should be doing. And she mm-hmm. really thought that the United States should be doing more to counter communism on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that also was not a particularly popular opinion. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and also at times, not, um, her opinions didn't uh, jive, right? They were sometimes seemingly contradictory. So she's difficult mm-hmm. to put in a simple um, and easy to understand sort of bucket. Mm-hmm. And so I think she was um, uh, sort of unjustly passed over in yeah. history, which I'm hoping to uh, rectify with this book. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.